experiences of, of love are as powerful in psychedelics as mystical experiences. And when someone has an experience of love, the whole kind of lens shifts. That can change societies. That can change families. That can change people. That can change our country. That can change our world. Welcome to Voices of Esalen. I'm Sam Stern. My guest today is Lauren Taus, licensed clinical therapist with a specialty in addiction and trauma treatment. Lauren utilizes ketamine-assisted psychotherapy in her clinical work, where she's had success treating a number of conditions including depression, anxiety, suicidality, eating disorders, OCD, and more. Lauren trained at the Trauma Institute in Boston in trauma-sensitive yoga and with the Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies, otherwise known as MAPS, for MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for complex PTSD. What I really appreciate about Lauren is that her work is firmly rooted in creating a safe and loving connection between herself and her clients. I know you'll enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with a skilled and compassionate psychedelic therapist. But before we get into all that, the past year saw a tremendous loss of life, grief, chaos, and pain. The need to find space to process and transform this grief collectively is more important than ever. Esalen's upcoming workshop, Grief Dancer, speaks directly to this need for a collective releasing of grief. The Grief Dancer workshop will take place May 14th to May 16th, 2021, facilitated by physician and author Peter Selwyn and Lucia Haran, who was trained by Gabrielle Roth, creator of the visionary Five Rhythms Method. Using the tools of the Five Rhythms movement practice combined with a process of grief work grounded in emotional presence, non-judgment, and supportive witnessing, participants will come together in a safe space to heal mind, body, and spirit. Secure your place for the workshop now with the link in our show notes or go to eslin.org slash workshops slash grief dash dancer. And now, here's Lauren Taus. So Lauren, tell me about the therapeutic work that you do with ketamine. What, what is most exciting about this work for you? It's a great question, Sam, and it's, it's a big answer. Everything about this work excites me. Mm. Absolutely everything about it. I think one of the biggest problems on planet Earth is mental health. And I'm interested in solutions that, are, that produce results, that get people where they want to go. And I've, I've benefited personally from, from this work, from these tools, from ketamine. I, I've been able to effectively introduce it into my family system. And I'm, and I'm passionate about families doing this work. So I've seen both personally and within my own blood tribe, like the, the blossoming benefits of, of the work. Uh, I've seen it time and time again in my clinical practice through all of the research. And, you know, and it's a an really incredible time for ketamine-assisted psycho psychotherapy and as well for, for consciousness medicine. If we take a, a couple steps back, for me, in, in the, this world that we're operating in, I, I have three commitments. Number one is direct service. That's working with clients, working with people, and supporting them in their own homecoming journey. I, I look at therapy as, as a process of excavating authenticity and, and inviting a person back to themselves. This is not, it's not about like improving, you know, and our culture gets so stuck on that. It's like, how, how do we just come home? So, so working with people, number one. Number two, education. And I work with couples, I work with families, I work with youngsters whose parents I'm in regular dialogue with. And being able to provide the information for people who may not be well-traveled in consciousness, who may have never had an experience um, with psychedelic medicine or recreational tools, and they're scared, you know, so to be able to answer questions, to be able to educate, uh, you know, my podcast has certainly been a part of that. And also stepping into more education for, for other clinicians is, is something I'm starting to do and passionate about. And then the last vertical that, that really, really gets my, uh, gets me excited is, is policy work. And we're still very much in a world where, where these tools are misunderstood and stigmatized and charged with meaning for, uh, other causes and purposes, which we can dive into later. But um, using my voice, activating my voice for the larger movement of decriminalization is something that I feel very, very passionate about and hope that the other people in the space join in, in that way as well. So 
I hope that sort of starts to answer some of the question. It does. Yeah, there's a couple of things that I want to unpack from what you uh, what you put out there. Number one, you said you introduced ketamine into your family system. So t- tell me a, a little bit about that, please. Sure. And, you know, Rick Doblin, who's become a bit of a soft mentor of mine as well. And thank you, thank you, thank you, Rick, for like answering every email that I ever sent. Um, he's very passionate about families coming out and people coming out. And has even told me, like, get your clients to write an article in the newspaper. I'm like, that's going to be challenging, Rick. Confidentiality is a thing in my field. But, you know, let's talk about what we're doing here. I can't tell you how many ceremonies I've been to where people are there with their families not knowing where they are. And from the outset of my own personal psychedelic journey work was transparent with my father, who you know, is a, is a New York Jew who missed out on the 60s and, you know, maybe smoked pot a couple of times, didn't like it, doesn't drink alcohol. I was very confused, like how and why his daughter, his straight ace, you know, student, community service, blah, 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 all the things would be doing what in his mind was just drugs. And I refused to lie to him. And I shared with him about my own personal growth. I shared with him resources, books, articles, and my dad, who's always a student, started to understand from a clinical vantage point. And then, and then I persuaded him further into his own experience and experiences. My father's now the, the primary physician in my, in my private practice. I work with a number of doctors, but my, my dad became so en- enrolled and enchanted by my consciousness that, that he immediately said, I want to do this too. I want to provide this work. And I have seen in my father outrageous levels of growth, unprecedented. And my dad was, is a person who was working on himself. Like he, he wasn't not reading the books, wasn't not going to therapy, but this, this is a whole new ball game. And to do that as a family, it's all family work. To me, it's like, we all have our blood tribes and let's invite them. And then we're all part of this human family and let's invite them. Mm-hmm. Uh, another thing that you had mentioned in your kind of your opening, uh, opening paragraph there was that you deal with youngsters. So are you saying that you provide um, ketamine therapy for, for uh, minors? Is this, a, is this a thing? Well, the youngest I've, I've treated is 17. I, so then I'm definitely working with mom and dad, you know, to mention our dear friend Rick again. He says bar and bat mitzvah age is an appropriate time to start thinking about these things. <laughs> Amazing. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And, and when it's indicated, you know, why, why should we stunt someone from their healing and their holding when, when, when they're hurting, if there's something that's available that works? And, you know, I'd like, to, I'd like to speak a little bit, Sam, to the way that I work with ketamine, because it's, it's such an unregulated space. And you know, there's people that are using ketamine recreationally. And there's people who are, um, ketamine also has a pretty significant shadow side, which I've seen and I, I'm aware of. And you know, to anybody who is using any type of su- substance to leave here because something here doesn't feel okay, I have great levels of compassion. But, but there, there's an abuse part that, that needs to be named. And then you know, what was first kind of rolled out in terms of any sort of mental health application was in the IV model, which has a bit more of a medicalized feel. After that, we started kind of exploring intermuscular injections, lozenges, uh, inhalants, and those types of applications could be done in softer settings, in places that that feel more intimate, maybe warmer. And because what opens up there is is so so intimate, uh, I I think that the setting needs to reflect it. Mm. I myself am a pretty particular guardian of the medicine. I believe very much that the medicine should be engaged with in context of relationship. So I don't ever take a client into inner outer space if I don't know who's who in their zoo, like where they're looking to go and grow. Like what are, what are the, what are we working with here? Because if you just like have an experience, it's an amusement park ride for your mind. And it's like really a drug. Like I want the, I want the, to be in relationship with the medicine and my client such that I can support them in letting go of obsessions, letting go of the tethers, letting go of the attachment to the traumas that, that they have held in their bodies and really open to new mind. What is the way that people will take ketamine if they go to see you in, in therapy? And what conditions are, are treatable with ketamine-based journeying and, and ketamine-based psychotherapy? Mm-hmm. 
lots and lots of treatments are lots and lots of like conditions are can be well treated my dad likes to say too that that ketamine is for the betterment of well people i think that that that's an interesting come from and personally i've been able to treat really effectively of course depression and anxiety also discrete episodes of trauma um bipolar disorder eating disorders uh addictions i've i've, I've seen clients who have been in addictive processes. And of course, whenever you start to engage with a tool like this, especially ketamine with a shadow side, there's you know, people's uh, eyebrows raise and you know, bells go off. But when, when you guardian it well, it can really facilitate uh, a recovery journey. And it can deepen a person's recovery journey. And I've seen that as well. In, in my personal practice, I work with both lozenges and intramuscular injections. Like I said, I'm gonna first get to know you. I, I'm, I'm not going to drop you into an experience without having a solid relationship with you where both you and me, you and I are like, okay, we're ready for this. If, if we're not both in the green light, it's, it's a no-go. And, and, and I like to work within a strength-based and empowerment model. So I also like to remind people, like, check out, like, in interview providers, get all your questions asked and, and make sure the person's trained and make sure that you can feel the person, that you feel safe with them. This is big work. I don't want someone to work with me. They don't feel like, like good with me. I'm not for everyone. Nobody is. I'm so deeply, wildly humbled by, by the work I get to do. But, but I, I remind my clients, you hire me and you fire me when you're ready to. Mm -hmm. uh, and I say that like you know, jokingly, but, but people, I want them to get what they need and, and, and go. How long does a ketamine session take if they're going to come see you? So my ketamine sessions are three hours. The first hour looks more like a traditional therapy session. And we'll talk about intentions. Of course, you set intentions and God laughs. Like it happens, it doesn't happen, whatever. But when we're traveling, like let's be clear on our why. I also, you know, we had spoken offline a little bit earlier about internal family systems work. I, I like to get permission from the protectors. So, so any part of a person that might be like, I don't know if I want to do this, or I'm, you know, like really, really scared. I, I want to work with those parts in that first hour in order to get full co consent from the person and at least to like welcome the parts that might be resistant. Now in the second hour is where the medicine happens. And there's different ways to work with ketamine. Like I said, and it's, it's, it's the wild, wild west out there. I, I personally am working in higher doses in more of a psychedelic dose. Many clinicians and friends of mine are working within, within an anxiolytic dose, which is essentially a social lubricant. It will uh, disarm a person enough that they can engage more deeply with content within a conversational context. I, I, I believe in A, both, but B, the importance and the value of completely leaving like this time and space dimension, accessing a different reality. And in doing so, really shaking up the operating system, like, like shaking your default mode, letting you, inviting a person to let go, let go of what's here, let go of the tethers and the obsessions and, and all the stuff. And they're really accessing their own medicine then. That second hour, it's, it's, it's the medicine irrespective of dosage lasts 45 to 75 minutes. I'll take a person, put them in, check on them. And, and once they're in, and by the way, you're gonna have a headset on music, and, and an eyefold. So, so the journey is really, really inward. And at the third, the beginning of the third hour, I'll gently remove the headset and we'll start to unpack what, what happened. And we'll be in the space of meaning making and anchoring and exploring so that a person has, you know, a, a much better chance of sustaining shift. You know, that, that third hour is really the golden hour for me. That's, that's, that's where the juice is at. Because psychedelic medicine isn't for us to be somewhere else. It's to be here more. It's to be like here. I think a good place to kind of explore more is to hear about this ketamine experience from a scientific perspective. You know, like what's the mechanism of action in the brain that, that creates this environment that, you know, that we're tapping into for, for therapeutic purposes? The, the, mechanism, the mechanism of action in the brain is different than a classic psychedelic. It does produce neurogenesis, so there are neural pathways that are being developed. 
there are definitely people that will be able to speak to the science better than I. What, what's interesting to me is really letting go to a completely different reality than the one that we operate in. And the more we can do that, like the, so, so when I'm working with people, I'm going to recommend a series of treatments. Old habits die hard. And I like to think about consciousness as something that, of course, is, is not, we can't touch it, but it's, it's informed by our, our ancestries, our, our collective space, transpersonal content. And, and we really need to like shift significantly, both individually and collectively, in order to create different results that, are, that have more kindness, that have more care. Um, within each individual ecosystem and then systemically. So for me, what's important is that, that there's an opportunity to really do something different through these tools and through ketamine specifically. What I've gleaned is that there's this dissociation that happens, which I don't associate with, with other psychedelics very much, but with ketamine, there's this ability to kind of press a, a reset button. Have you experienced that with, with your clients? Have they reported sort of this ability to, to break from the habituation? Totally, totally. And, and yes, yeah, so, so let's name what, what is ketamine. Ketamine is an anesthetic. It's a schedule three drug. And at sub-anesthetic doses, it creates hallucinogenic qualities, which to people like Stan Groff and uh, Ralph Metzner, and, you know, their cohort was very interesting back in the 70s. And, you know, it wasn't until the 2000s that we really started to roll this out um, in, a, in a bigger way as a tool in therapy. So the dissociative quality, which happens because it's an anesthetic, allows a person to leave their body for a period. And what I've discovered is that that generally lends itself to a softer return and to a return with more kindness and more joy and embodied existence and experience. The ketamine experience, like any psychedelic, is, is varied. You know, it can be scary for people. Uh, it can be boring. It can be full of grandeur and freedom and joy. I've got many clients who have breakthroughs in, in pleasure. And, and what presents during the actual like medicine part may or may not impact what comes up in, in the integration. So there's really like a, an unraveling. The, the bolts that are so tightly screwed into our brains get, get kind of unscrewed. And then we have a lot more content to work with in, in the therapeutic space. There's nothing new, as we all know, and as I'm sure all the listeners here know, about psychedelics. And within indigenous cultures... You know, if someone has a, has a, a ceremony, the, the shaman is just down the road. So you have someone to go talk to. In, in our context, like there's no one to support. There's like, unless there's support, there's no support. And it's disorienting. It doesn't make sense for a lot of people. So having somewhere to go, someone to like anchor the, the insights and the discoveries and the possibilities is where the medicine is at for me. Because, you know, I believe that the deepest levels of development and growth and healing happen relationally. Most importantly, in the relationship that a person has with him or herself. And then letting the, you know, the therapeutic alliance be a practice field for how do we do this well? How do we do this in a good way? And then, and then going forward, right? So that people become so connected to their own hearts that like they're walking permission slips. And the only thing that makes sense is love. Absolutely, it's a dissociative. And um, there's a lot of benefit to, to dissociating in order to feel more. Oh, that's so interesting. That's, that's a really cool perspective. There's just so much responsibility that comes with um, creating the space for people to be in a, a space of total feeling. And you mentioned like for people to feel more pleasure. And I thought about my own kind of perspective on that and, you know, not wanting to have to hold all this responsibility for people who might be sobbing and breaking down into, into tears or for people who are awakening. There's just this monumental vulnerability that you sign on for. And what do you think that is about, about you as a person that makes you desire that? Everything about what you just said made me take a big inhale and a big exhale. And, and breath is such an ally. And, you know, what I want to say first is that my own self-care is so important. And to any clinician and to any, anybody doing this work and to anybody, period, like be in the space of your own self-care. Self-care is healthcare. And what has gotten me into this work is just being someone that people have consistently since I was small 
turn to. And it's something, you know, I, I think one of my superpowers is, is love and loving people and, and, and allowing them to soften in my presence. And, you know, I, I've, I've certainly been through my own pains. And, you know, I like to say the bigger the shadow, the bigger the light. Uh, I'm, I'm not quiet about what my experiences have been. I'm not afraid to go there with people. I don't, I don't look at myself as, you know, helping people even like I'm, I'm, I'm not in the business of helping people. Uh, people help themselves and I'll hold their hands and, and I'll walk down whatever dark road we need to go down and, and I will watch and I will sit and I will, I will feel you. I will feel with you. But my job is to support. My job is, is, is to, to be with not, I, I, I'm not, I, thank God I'm not helping, I'm not helping anybody because, you know, it's, it, it's theirs and it's easy for uh, a clinician to want to take credit for. I mean, there's nothing, nothing more gratifying, satisfying, and exciting for me than, than the breakthroughs of my clients and nothing motivates me more along my own path. But, but those are theirs. Oh, love that answer. Really, really, really deeply like appreciate and feel that answer. You have a brilliant podcast called Embodied Life that focuses on psychedelic psychotherapy. Talk to me a little bit about why you dedicated yourself to create this show. I started the podcast even before, like the season one was about psychedelic content without it being psychedelic. I've spent a lot of time in in, in Israel and in in the Holy Land, in in the West Bank, and and I've, I've been in the inquiry around that conflict and, and looking at it very much as, as a mirror for any individual soul and each one of us living in, in holy lands, our bodies, and, and the kind of disparate pieces and dialogues and kind of righteousness and wars and peace and all of it that live inside. And when I transitioned over to a conversation around psychedelic medicine and psych- psychedelic assisted therapy, it was really for my own continued learning and again to support and serve the second commitment of mine, which is education. And, you know, I'm, I'm also quite a connector. Like I, I, I love people. Oh my gosh, Sam, I love people so much. And, and I, I love hearing their stories and I love learning from them. And I have been able to do that with my podcast and I've really been able to network in this space and share and learn and create friendships and collaborations and research and all kinds of things out of, Hey, let's talk and and let's share. Yeah. I always tell people like, if you're interested in a field, just you should maybe consider starting a podcast about it because if you want to be more connected to people, one great way to do that is to interview people. I don't know if you would agree with that or, or not, but I would love to hear about your, your thoughts around, you know, you're a psychotherapist, you talk to people for a living and you listen to people for a living. That might be even more uh, to the point. Do you think that translates in a way to having a podcast? Probably. I will say there's one podcast and I hope, whatever, it's, it's out there. Uh, there. There's a podcast, it's one of my favorites with Louis Schwartzberg, who's the filmmaker behind Fantastic Fun- Fungi. And Louis and I have developed a friendship out of our conversations together. He's been on the podcast twice. And in one of his in the first conversation that we had, my mission was to unpack the significance of being a Holocaust survivor to his work. He had, um, not, not being a, a survivor, his parents were both survivors. And what, what's the impact? He had named this in interviews with Oprah and other places and spaces, but never really unpacked it. And, and we were both crying and talking about it. And it was like, probably the job of a therapist. <laughs> to get that to like milk the juice there and yeah I mean I I like to connect with people personally sometimes people will get stuck in wanting to just talk about the work Uh, I want to feel you and I want people to feel more so yes 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 let's like learn but but people are going to lose interest if they're not enchanted by what's being shared and and that comes to me through through the person and and uh the stories and the details and the why. And so I, I try to like get there in my conversations. Yeah, so there's, there's some parallels. It's not the same thing, of course. I'm just trying to draw, draw some sort of connection there. Like I told you before, we, we started taping my dad as a therapist. And of course, he's always encouraged me 
to become one and I've always denied him the pleasure of it, but maybe he can, um, he can enjoy the fact that I do talk to people quite a lot for a living one-on-one. Yeah. But, <laughs> um, you know, one thing I wanted to bring up that I really appreciated about your podcast when I, when I took a look at it is that you're really taking a close look at issues like transformative justice and anti-racism within the field of psychedelic medicine. I would love for you to talk to us a bit about why you've chosen this lens. Well, I would say that one of my earliest psychedelic experiences did not involve medicine. And let's break down the word psychedelic again for, for, for everyone, which is just like mind manifesting. It's a soul re- revelation. It's, it's widening the aperture. And, you know, I am a, a privileged, educated white woman. So when I was in my clinical training years, I was working at therapeutic community is what they call it. And it was a drug and alcohol treatment facility populated by people as an alternative to incarceration. It was there that I really, really, really saw racism. And I, and I felt it and I touched it and I smelled it and I listened to it and it gave me nightmares. And it affected my sense of safety and it made my blood boil. And, and, and I had no clue. I had no clue. I mean, I, that, those early, early clinical training years like changed me and I'm so grateful and, and horrified at the same time. So, you know, we're in this country uh, spoon fed racism for breakfast without even thinking about it. I believe that we generally operate in models of domination, slave and slave drivers still. And I believe from my own personal white privileged experience that, that that's been so deeply internalized in my own mind, heart, and body that I've done it to myself. That that violence is inside of me, me with me. And so arresting it is not just for some proverbial them. It's also for for me. And what psychedelic space can open up is liberation and deeper levels of honesty and conversation and love and connection you know, there's a lot of uh, spiritual bypassing in the space. Uh, there's, there's still quite a lot of, of separation for many reasons that make sense to me. But I, I, I believe that it is my responsibility as an educator and, and as a human to talk about it, to look at it, and, and to be in the space of, of changing it as best I can. So you ask, how can we celebrate our shared humanity? during a conversation that you created about anti-racism and psychedelics with Dr. Joseph McCallan, Charlotte James, and under your right, I'd like to ask you, what, what are some of the biggest takeaways from that conversation? Uh, I think that conversation pointed to the fact that cultural competency is not enough. We really need uh, representation as well, uh, looking at the ways in which um, black bodies have been, you know, abused and mutilated by the medical communities. And so there's a resistance to connecting in any way, even if it might be healing, there, there's, there's trauma there. Just the breadth of microaggressions. It's, it's in the air that we breathe. And, 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 and as someone who's really trying to unpack my own shit, if you will, and to be honest about it, because I'm, I'm here. To be, to be ready to be like corrected and supported and yeah, like to just to be humble. Yeah, it seems like this year has seen kind of like a mass reckoning with the issue of race in, in America. And some people have signed up to take part in it. And some people have sort of like, we were going to back burner this. I myself have been interested in just... I think a lot like you and apprehending my own role within systemic racism. And it's been a very slow, somewhat painful, very interesting process. And I consistently come back to this question of like, how can I actually be of use to this conversation? It brings to mind, I, I have a, one of my very best friends is the director of advocacy and policy at MAPS. And she, along with some other dear friends of mine, are pioneering a, a study on psychedelics as conflict resolution in the Middle East and Israelis and Palestinians drinking medicine together. It's, it's, it's not that, but not, not that here. And how do we move forward 
you know, personally, like with my privilege, I put my money where my mouth is. I have, I have like a recurring, you know, like just auto payment to Black Lives Matter. And I don't say that to like toot my horn. Like that's the least I can do. And, and, and if, if people have more to, than they need, like give to people that are tackling this problem. I have compassion for all of us. But I, I think that we have to take responsibility. We have to each take individual responsibility because it's, it's our, it's ours. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's very interesting to consider Israelis and Palestinians drinking medicine together. And you were talking earlier about this ability to hit a reset button with the dissociative effects of, of at least ketamine. Maybe that's the psychedelic that to be of choice. I don't know if I think about. <laughs> that would be easier. <laughs> I think about Democrats and Republicans yeah. maybe meeting to get together in the house, oh. drink some medicine together, or at the very least do some psychotherapy. I mean, like not very least. Let, let's let's pivot a little bit. I want to uh, ask you about an interview you did with Dr. Adele LaFrance about treating eating disorders with psychedelic medicine. Talk to me a little bit about this. It seems like such a um, an exciting prospect. I, I have developed a really sweet and beautiful connection and relationship with Adele. And I, I tip my hat to her for really pioneering a lot of research on a number of different medicines as treatment for eating disorders. And one of the things that she talks about a lot, which I really appreciate, is really taking the blame off of an individual who's, who's uh, struggling or combating uh, a condition like an eating disorder involving the families in treatment. Again, I'm such a family girl. I'm, I'm such a, I'm so committed to families and families doing this work together. She, she in her studies is involving primary care providers. So family members in, in her research, because again, people need to be able to receive support from, from their loved ones when they're home, not just when they're with their therapist. And, and I think that that's a really important ingredient that she's weaving into the work that she's doing and also just to be mindful of the fact that these conditions develop when um, internal resourcing is overpowered by external stressors that's what that's what we're really looking at it's not even about the food and you know sam I'm, I've, I've been public about you know my own history having had an eating disorder and um and my own life as a human wrap and skin on planet earth. And so this particular research and work is very dear to my heart because it's, it's been my life as well. Well, talk to me a little bit about your journey then. What, what tools and therapies helped you along your way um, and including psychedelics if, if that was one of your, the tools in your toolkit? My recovery road was supported by so many different things. Definitely therapy. I will say therapy saved my life. And, and therapy is, is something that I, is still what I do every day. I love therapy. I love like just to be able to be heard and seen and, you know, loved up on. And Adele talks a lot about love. And Carl Rogers said, you know, talked about unconditional positive regard that a client experiences from a clinician. That's fancy clinical jargon for love. Let's, let's, let's use the word. Let's talk about it. I, I, and, and I have said this before and I'll say it again, and this is so renegade. I love my clients. It's boundaried and it's appropriate, but I love them. They know that. And I think that that's part of, of what supports their, their healing and holding. And I got loved up on by my therapist in an appropriate and boundaried way. And it helps me a lot. And, and I think that therapists that are doing a good job, they love their people. Like, like this is this is what we're doing here. You know, I had a guy at Burning Man was in his 80s. Tell me if it isn't love, it isn't real. And I'm like, yes, friend. And I, <laughs> so therapy absolutely, absolutely like saved my life. And I was I was a very anorexic, 19 year old, uh, very 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 unwell, very scared. Uh, didn't know, you know, I had, I had a lot, a lot going on. My, my sister was dying. There was other stuff happening. And uh, that, that was my mechanism for control. I didn't know what to do. Um, yoga, yoga. So I, I'm, uh, I, I've been a yoga teacher for 20 years. I no longer teach asana, but yoga is still the foundation of everything that I do. The word yoga means connection. And for me, it's essentially an integration practice. It's, it's how do we 
you know, gather within the, the tribe of our blood and our bones? How do, how do we convene with our own hearts and minds? How do we like still and slow down long enough to notice what's actually here? So yoga for me has been and continues to be very like, kind of foundational and absolutely conscious, consciousness medicine has been a part of my journey. All, all of the tools that I've used have been part of my journey to, to deeper levels of, of embodiment. And, you know, I believe as well that we are educated to, to divorce from our own somatic wisdom. We're so disconnected from our intuition. Uh, of course, not all of us, but, but a, a lot of us uh, are in the space of doubting ourselves and trust ourselves. You know, the, I, I believe intuition is divine direction and, and we have it with us at all times. So we want to like, I want to clear the channel and, working with the body is something that I still do. Even just watching a client breathe in a session, like watching, watching, you know, their shoulders, watching everything about how they're like sitting and being with themselves is giving me information. Most, most communication is nonverbal. So with my personal journey, MDMA has really, really supported deeper levels of embodiment. Ketamine has absolutely, uh, ayahuasca has probably been my, 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 you know, it's mama medicine. I'm very grateful for these tools in my own journey, in my own life. And if, and if I didn't know them from that vantage point, from my own cellular body, it would be hard for me to advocate so strongly for them. I, I just know that it works. I've, I've had like wild levels of healing through these tools. And again, then supported by therapy. That, that, that's the thing that we do. Because if it's just an experience without the support, like I, I, I don't think it would have worked. Well, here's kind of a multi-part follow-up question there. Have you been able to help any of your clients with uh, eating disorders via psychedelic medicine? I'm just curious to hear any other sort of success story that you might have with uh, a condition that has been traditionally hard to, to affect change without psychedelic medicine. Absolutely. It's, it's difficult to answer the question without kind of breaching confidentiality, but I will say that, that I have really effectively treated eating disorders. Uh, like I said, discrete episodes of trauma that, that uh, an individual that years, years, decades, I mean, I've got one client decades and, and wild shift, like wild, unrecognizable. That's what's so amazing about these tools. It's it, a person can get there without them. Absolutely. Absolutely. But it would take a, the type of discipline and commitment and some type of practice that like, I don't know anyone who has. And, you know, what these tools do when they're activated in a good way is accelerate that journey. So there, there have been, you know, childhood traumas in adult people that have completely taken over their present and dysregulated them and caused them great levels of, of physical pain, which have been relieved almost in a single session where they're confident, they're making more eye contact, they're um, in re good relationships, they're embracing like their bodies, they're dancing, they're making art, like things that, that these people were essentially like dead and so disconnected from the stream of life that lives inside of them. And, and they've been able to, to release. I'm A, confident that it happened in the context of the relationship between the individual, myself, and the medicine. But that without the medicine, it, was, it, would, it would never have gotten there. As not, I mean, maybe never, I don't know. But like, wow, very difficult for me to conceptualize that it would have happened. So what are your hopes for psychedelic medicine and for your practice going forward? Five years from now, are you going to be a, a psychedelic psychotherapist? And if so, who are you going to be treating and, and what, are your, what will your tools be? Sam, another big juicy question. And, and I've got a big, huge smile over here. This is such a, a juicy, juicy space we find ourselves in. And as the decriminalization movement expands, as psychedelic therapy expands, as these tools become more readily available, we have a whole kind of world to, to create and to explore. I'm, I'm currently you know, pretty much full in my private practice. And if anything, really looking to lean, like to do less uh, and doing less for, this, for the sake of doing more. 
and, and doing less to be like more present when, while I'm working, uh, I a hundred percent will be working with people in five years. So if, if I'm here, if I, unless something crazy happens, like I love my work. I, I can't believe I get paid to do it. It is such a privilege. It is such an honor. It is such a blessing. It is, it is my greatest like joy. And, and I want to widen it. I, I'd like to find ways to uh, support responsible and ethical expansion. Personally, that, that seems to look like small group practice as well as deeper levels of education potentially providing education to, I mean, what, what I really, what I really want to do is, is, is provide education to other providers because we're going to need re, like responsible therapists doing this work. Yeah. That's kind of what I see. And, and it's, it's a, it's a wild world out there, you know, in, in, I think in 2027, it's works, the psychedelic spaces are expected to be like a $7 billion industry. And there's so much money that's being thrown around there's a lot of like good hearts. And sometimes I question like the stewardship um, behind certain things or, or I worry because these are, these are just like these explosive tools and um, you want to make sure that they're, that they're being wielded. Well, they're, it's all really neutral, but like, what, what are we doing with it? And uh, my, my teacher, Phil Wolfson says that uh, money is the most addictive and blinding drug that exists. And, you know, you want to be operating on, on a frequency of providing good support, creating deeper levels of connection and proliferating the work, but in a really good way. So, um, I have, I have my concerns. And I also have like deep levels of passion. I understand that there's going to be like uh, learnings, if you will. Do you think that five years from now, ketamine based psychedelic psychotherapy will be the only legal tool or will there be several others that will that are sort of like on the cusp of, of being used oh yeah mdma will will god willing be legal in the next couple of years you know that that medicine has made such deep you know deep deep progress through the fda is you know being rolled out in the veterans uh community um psilocybin as well obviously the big big work happening at johns hopkins there's research happening all the time. Like the, the, we're moving so quickly and it's so exciting because the you know, trauma and its causes are, are multiplying. So, so we need effective treatment. And I'm confident that, that there will be more tools available that can be paired to different mental health conditions or problems or challenges. And you know, I, on many levels, effort to be agnostic about the tool because it's about the integration. Um, I'm also trained by MAPS in their MDMA protocol, and I look forward to bringing that into my practice. Uh, I really, really look forward to that. But I will say that, that ketamine will still, will still be a tool that I pick up regularly when everything is available. Uh, ketamine is, is a beautiful and deep medicine, and, and I, love, I love working with, with ketamine. Yeah, I mean, one thing that just comes to mind is that MDMA takes so much longer and psilocybin takes takes so much longer it would completely change the how you would operate as a as a therapist because a, probably a three-hour session wouldn't suffice i wonder if that would make your life easier or harder because you would downsize the number of of clients that you take if you became a primarily an mdma based therapist do you have thoughts oh, i mean i i think that it would be a mix uh, and an MDMA session is a massive amount of energetic output. You know, the work works me every time. I never want my heart not to break. It, it will be very much like case by case, like what, what's, what's indicated, what's called for, but you're a hundred percent right. That one of the real like kind of beauties of ketamine is that it is so fast acting and it is so effective in treating so many different conditions and it makes it, you know, something that more people can get more quickly. You know, the session, it doesn't necessarily even need to be three hours. Like I, I, I take my time with people and, and I like it that way. But um, I imagine you could probably get them, get it in two hours. Uh, you, want, you want to honor the space and honor the person and get, get, do it well. But um, yeah, time is a thing. And what if we never get out of this pandemic? Will people be able to access the, the psychedelic space remotely? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's as, as we mentioned briefly, I, I've served a number of people with at-home ketamine lozenges through Zoom. 
And I think that there's a lot that is um, missing when you're not in person, but wow, it's been so beautiful to be able to continue to support my clients in this way in these unusual times and in times that really call for uh, important and, and, you know, healing work, you know, the, the depression and, and the suicidality and the anxiety that has been precipitated as well by the coronavirus. Like there's a mental health pandemic that we're also swimming in with repercussions that we won't, we don't have the ability to, to conceptualize right now, but being able to, to work remotely is something that I have done. And there's, you know, so many different companies that are, are pushing that work forward as well. It's not my preference, but I'm grateful to be able to do it. Well, in an effort to sort of bring our conversation somewhat to a close, this doesn't have to be the last question, but sort of like, you know, wrapping it up. I want to ask you a question that I've asked a bunch of the other people I've interviewed. Do you share what Michael Pollan has called an evangelical enthusiasm for psychedelics? In other words, are there moments when you believe in the capacity of psychedelics to effectively change our society, to cure some of the most horrible ails, to bestow a knowledge of unity and oneness to this crazy populace we have here? What do you think? Yes, <laughs> absolutely. I, I, I am uh, wildly passionate about psychedelic medicine. I, I will say that it's not for everybody. It is not the cure. It is not a panacea. It is not any of these things. And, you know, I don't want to douse everyone with MDMA. I don't want to douse everyone with ayahuasca. I don't want to douse anyone with ketamine. Like, no, it's like Jack Kornfield's book, Ecstasy, but then the laundry. It's, it's about here now. And when this work is done well, the universe can change. Literally anything can change. Experiences of, of love are as powerful in psychedelics as mystical experiences. And when someone has an experience of love, the whole kind of lens shifts. That can change societies. That can change families. That can change people. That can change our country. That can change our world. And, and, and I want that. You know, I think our problems are perfect and we're exactly where we're meant to be. And I'm excited to be able to pick up these tools to see where we can grow together and see how we can you know, love up on each other more and, and really like welcome ourselves more fully, open the gates of our own hearts to ourselves. I, I, I'm totally evangelical, but I'm also specific about it. You seem to be a person who's well-equipped for the job that she's taken on. You have a positivity to you that I don't see with everyone. And I want to ask you, is this native to you or is this something that can be worked on and stoked because, you know, more so than the psychedelics, more so than the than any of that. I think what we're trying to come into is like right relationship with ourselves and the work we do. And, and this stuff has come up all the more so within the, the last year of having to sit at home and, and be with ourselves. So talk to me about how you have, you know, come into your own level of intimacy and being with yourself. Hmm. What a journey I've had. As, as, a, as a little child, I, I was afraid of death. I didn't like when people said I was funny because I was serious and life was serious. And, you know, in my teenage years and in my early 20s, I, I was uh, full of self-hatred. Wow. I had, I had crippling self-hatred to the point of narcissism. I couldn't see beyond my own suckery and how much I thought I, you know, I was terrible. Now I'm, I'm really a happy person. I, I really love myself. I'm, I'm human. I can tell you all kinds of like, areas I need to work on. Um, but but I, I have learned, I have really learned to love myself. And I have learned to let go of the obsession with my, with my body. Uh, and in so doing, I've learned to love her. And when I meet people for the first time, and they get to know me, they can't imagine that I would have ever been anything other than what I am today. And I, I, I was, I, I was, I was really in a lot of pain and the work works when you work it. And I believe that you can only take someone as far as you've gone. So I, I consider, you know, my continued emancipation and liberation and like self-love journey, uh, a, a professional responsibility because I, I want, I want that for people. Because when someone has a genuine sense of their own care, the, it's the only thing that makes sense. 
it's the only thing that matters is, is to like give and to like find ways to make the world a little bit better. Yes, it can be stoked. Yes, it can, it can be shifted. Um, and, and everything is constantly in flux. Like nothing, everything is temporary, including my good moods. You know? <laughs> um, but wow, I, I've, I've had a journey into self-love. And I would say that that is my biggest wish is for people to fall in love with themselves in a real way. Not, a, not an egotistical, cocky way, but like a, I like myself and I sleep well at night. And I'm making good choices. And when this game is over, I'll feel like I did a good job. Lauren, how can our listeners find out more about you and find out more about psychedelic psychotherapy? Well, you can check out my website, which is inbodiedlife.com, I-N-B-O-D-I-E-D, life.com. And it's all about going in, my friends. Go in, 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 in. The whole universe lives inside of you. And my, my Instagram is at lauren.taus, T-A-U-S. My, my uh, podcast, Embodied Life, is on Spotify and iTunes. And I have some fun things in the works, so please stay connected to, to see what rolls out in the, in, in the coming months. Yeah, if somebody was going to check out the podcast Embodied Life, what's a uh, an episode they might be a good starter? Like I said, I love my conversation with Louis Schwartzberg. Uh, that's one of my personal favorites. There's there all there's so many good ones in there. I, I love my conversation with Rachel Yehuda on intergenerational trauma. I, I love my conversation with Camille Barton on on somatic. Uh, freedom and, and and transformative justice. I love my conversations with Charlotte Dre. I love them all. They're like my babies. It's hard to pick. Um, but, you know, cruise through, see what what's interesting to you and, and take a listen. Lauren Taos, thank you so much for this enlightening conversation. I feel like I've really learned so much and gotten to know you uh, in a in a really special way. I appreciate the work that you're doing out in the world and the example that you're setting for therapists and non-therapists all over the place. Thanks, Sam. Thanks for having me. What, what a fun chat today. And I look forward to, to more. Thank you for listening to Voices of Esalen. Today's show is produced in conjunction with Peter Kobabe, Terry Gilby, and Michelle McCrary. Our music is by Nico Holloman. The Esalen Institute is a nonprofit organization. Our show is made possible by your contribution. <laughs>